Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Hello, tourpreneurs out there in tourpreneur land. Welcome to another episode of the Tourpreneur Tour Business Podcast. And this podcast episode follows our last very successful episode, the Tourpreneur Call-In Show, where we receive calls or recordings from fellow tourpreneurs out there who have questions and we field them, we answer them, we debate them, we discuss them. So this was an experiment. Uh, if you go back a couple of episodes, you'll see our first episode on this and we're going to keep doing it. Everybody seemed to really like the banter and hearing from fellow tour operators. So if you are interested in adding your voice to an episode, just go to speakpipe.com slash tourpreneur. We'll put the link in the show notes, record your own question and you and your business and your question can be featured on the next episode of the Tourpreneur Colin show. So I am Mitch Bach and I am joined by my fellow two headless horsemen, Pete and Chris. Pete, how goes it? All good. I'm back in sunny Scotland this week. It's not very sunny, but never mind with that. So it's all good. You spend most of your time with your head in the AI clouds and was just wondering what this January has been on your mind as you've been looking at the kind of landscape of travel industry, tour operators, technology? Yeah, it's picking up speed. Uh, it wasn't already going fast enough. It's picking up speed. 95% plus is still focused on how do we save money? How do we save time using AI, which is exactly the correct thing it should be focused on when you're going through the learning journey. So if you're not using AI tools every day, you should be, because that's the only way you're going to learn this stuff. It's going to make your business more efficient and more productive. And that's where the big efforts are being applied. And most operators are now in the early stages of learning that this stuff does save you cost, it saves you time. However, I still stick with comments I've been saying for a couple of years, the strategic use of AI, because all of cost saving and increase of productivity and efficiency is tactical use. Everybody can do that. The strategic use I'm not seeing a lot of, and that's because the strategic use of AI is very difficult. The strategic use is where you reimagine your business, where you reimagine what your customers are doing, and you create new services and new products to service a market that may not already be there or a market it is there. So the strategic use of AI is not big at the moment. Is it going to come? I think it will, I may be wrong, but the operational tactical use of it is it's now part of the day-to-day -day business of many operators. And if it isn't, you're way behind the curve now. You need to be because your competition is more efficient than you now. You know, Joe Pine talks about something beyond the experience economy that everybody hears us rag on about, but he talks about mass customization, the opportunity to be able to offer something very customized at scale to a lot of people. And on this sort of AI level, you're right. People are thinking about content. They're thinking about maybe business strategy or data analysis. But, you know, we, we talk, we've talked in the past about the rise of kind of self-guided options for tours. And I feel like operators are just waking up to the potential for AI to be able to connect with what they love, which is human. It, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but you can create complementary services at a larger scale that can connect with what your human experiences are doing, but be able to offer something before a trip, after a trip, in addition to a trip uh, or complementary to it, that sort of starts to create 
entirely new product lines uh, for our industry. That's something that's been rolling around in my head because I feel like I haven't seen a lot of creativity. I feel like people are taking camps on either side right now. Either they're really leaning into what's special about being human or they're saying, let's create AI audio guides or self-guided mobile tours or uh, trip planners or all of that. The word is hybrid. Uh, whether that sticks, I don't know, but I've been using it forever. The word is hybrid. A tour operator sh who has great human experiences, 100% double down and make the great human experiences better. As long as they've got a barrier to entry there, they will still be great human experiences. But you can look after that client better now. If you're looking after them four hours, you can now look after them 24 hours. And you would be naive to think that in 10 years' time or five years' time or three years' time, the sector is going to be like it is at the moment. It is not. And other people, not just in the sector, but out with the sector, are looking to look after your guests in destination 24 by 7 by giving them tools to look after them. So at a marginal cost rather than a high operational cost as an operator, why wouldn't you do that? If you've got the opportunity to spend four hours with a client with a human, the rest of the day give them digital aids to make their, in, their experience better. I really struggle to come up with arguments why you wouldn't do that because it just binds the customer to you yeah. more. You know, I'll give an example of why this was on my mind because we had somebody in the Facebook group uh, ask a question, should I include hotels for my three-day city stays uh, that I'm developing? So multi-day, but focused in a city, just a few days. And uh, the poster asked, you know, is it better to include a hotel or not to include a hotel? Everybody said include a hotel. I raised my head and said I would never book that because I like the potential of choosing my own unique hotel. If there's a business opportunity in the flexibility of choosing your hotel uh, while also meeting together to share meals, guided experiences, whatever, during the way with a potential group uh, experience, then there's a logistical issue of making sure you are serving at a high level a customer that might be staying in various locations around a city. And if you can wake up and you have a branded little bot that says, good morning, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, whatever, and uh, we know exactly where you're staying, we know exactly what you like, and we're going to guide you to your first experience or give you that customized schedule. And part of that hybrid overall experience is those high touch human moments, but it's not the whole customer experience. Um, it's a no brainer to me. And I think it's, I think those types of models are, are, are really interesting and largely unexplored by our, by our industry. No, for sure. No, I've actually spoken about this at the, the event I was at recently in Ireland. I used to call it a hybrid, a sort of model I call it the connected trip. Um, but it's a similar thing as where a brand and a business and a tour operator is able to one, generate more revenue and more money because they are going through that person's or that, that sort of traveler's journey all the way through their time in a destination, whether that's for a day or multiple days. Uh, and it's just a way of keeping your brand in front of them. It's, and one, it's another way of raising awareness about your brand and, and marketing, et cetera. But it's, just, it's certainly another way for you to gen generate more revenue. And having something that's a hybrid or a connected trip of both digital and in-person, I think it's, it's a way all tour operators, in my opinion, this way travel is going to go uh, over the next few years. So yeah, as, as Pete says, if you're not already doing it and some of your competitors are, then you're certainly going to fall behind and people will more gravitate, especially with the, the younger sort of generation coming through are more digital savvy, et cetera, et cetera. No, they are going to be looking for that type of thing. So the fact is if you don't have that or you're not even thinking about it, then they, they are going to be left behind everyone else who is. So I've, I've been working with a few larger operators this week. And I see the same thing happening time and time again, and it's happening now as well. Uh, it happened in history 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It happens time and time again. Every operator, no matter what size you are, has strengths, has capabilities, has assets, be them intangible or fixed assets, uh, and also has weaknesses. And they come up with a business and it performs to a certain level. If I then look at the businesses who are all seven figures plus or eight figures in a community, it, what's the core difference between them and the businesses that don't grow to that uh, level? 
it's not necessarily the strengths and the knowledge and their experiences that they're delivering. And it's not necessarily the smaller ones have more weaknesses either. It comes back to something I was talking about last week, which is risk. And I was talking about the risks that I see in 2024 impacting in your business. The biggest risk an operator has is not taking risks. And the operators who get to a, a reasonable scale, seven figures and above or beyond, the main differentiation factor I see between them and the operators that don't is their willingness to take risks. And when I say taking risks, that's trying new things, things like we're moving into an AI world. There's certain operators that will go this way because their risk acceptance is higher than other operators. Uh, and that's what that's the main thing I see if I'm looking for one thing that differentiates a larger scaled operator who's building up quickly. It's that acceptance of seeing risk, appreciating it as both a, an opportunity risk and a threat, and then doing something about it. And therefore also accepting failure as part of the iterative process. Trying things means a lot of creativity, which means a lot of things on the chopping on the chopping room floor. I'll, again, the best talk I heard last year was at um, Tour Raiders event, Adventure Together event in Vienna. And they had the CMO from Nike on there, a former CMO, uh, who said um, our marketing team had to learn to be okay with the fact that 99% of what they came up with would never see the light of day. And uh, sometimes um, as business owners, we fall in love with our ideas. We fall in love with our tours and that love blinds us from realizing that it's time to, uh, it's time to, time to kick that bird out of the nest. Sorry for that metaphor. <laughs> um, I was at the New York iteration of the travel and adventure show, which is a B2C show where a bunch of people around New York city pay $20 to come in and visit travel booths. A lot of destinations there. I thought they were all almost uh, uh, uniformly boring, um, except a couple of them served food. The destinations got low marks. Uh, the speakers were fine. Um, Rick, Spies, Rick Steves has been delivering the same speech for 40 years at this show uh, about how to help 70-year-olds uh, get off the beaten path in... Uh, uh, in Europe, which uh, for him was the gateway of travel for Americans. Um, I thought it was kind of a bland talk. No offense, Rick. Uh, you're great. You know your audience. But um, he it's funny. He raised. He asked the audience, raise your hand if you've ever been to Amsterdam. Amsterdam's a wonderful city. Every single hand on a floor of 400 people went up. And then he proceeded to talk about how... Uh, how he knows the best hidden gem castle in Germany that you should go to. And it's funny. I remember um, I was 19 years old. Uh, this was 20 years ago. And um, maybe I was like 20 or something. And uh, I was just randomly traveling through Germany. And I saw a town called Bacharach. And my last name is Bach. So I was like, I'm going to go to Bacharach. And it felt like the most remote place on earth. And I got off the train. I was just there just for the heck of being in Bacharach. And I went up um, from the train station, went into a cafe. And every single, this is not an exaggeration, every single other person sitting at the cafe was holding a Rick Steves guidebook. And it was a, it was a man and a woman couple sitting there reading their Rick Steves uh, guidebooks, waiting for the next thing that he recommended. Um, and I turned to them and I said, why are you here? I think I know the answer. They said, well, Rick says this is the best hidden gem village to go to in uh, the Rhine River Valley. So I guess, I don't know if I have a question, but I'm wondering, is there any hope for our industry or are we just going to ruin everything and keep ruining everything? There's no way to travel that involves a guidebook or much less a blog or anything that isn't just going to get trampled to yeah, death. There are always going to be hidden gems. There's still plenty of places and things to see that are maybe not as quite as popular, but no, that's as well. We do it through our own marketing agency, trying to market some of those places as well. Um, but yeah, that does get to a stage where they won't be so much so hidden anymore. So it's it, you're, you're almost cannibalizing your own model and your own messaging by saying, we'll come to visit this hidden gem. But once it's out, it's out, and then it won't be so much hidden after that. So it's 
you're always going to have to try and find new hidden gems and new things that people don't know about or talk to uh, other places that they, they can say we can make this into a destination as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's always that sort of hamster wheel of always trying to find something new to, uh, to add to the mix. And yeah, I suppose in a way that it does sort of cannibalize what you're already doing, but it's, it's a thing that people want. They want to see something a bit different. Yeah, it's a, it's a mess. Kim, we've got to be honest here. The numbers of people now traveling versus the numbers 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago and what is coming, we're about to add another 2 billion and in the next 25 years, you've got all of this people with complete access to all the information in the world at the speed of their fingertips or as quick as they can ask a question into an AI, which is going to drive huge amounts of number to whoever's in fashion at any one point to direct traffic. And it's very easy to be able to get to a point soon where a individual can say, go here, and you can have tens of thousands of people within a month going to that one traction or one spot. Nothing about that in my head is good. It's all just a complete mess. It's going to cause travel a complete... I mean, we're seeing the early, the early warning signs and the early trouble of this happening, and we're only at stage one, and there's another 10 stages to go to it. So... It's really ho hor horrible to see it happening because it's going to blow back in travel space. There is slight solutions. Like, so I was traveling last week in the Baltic, uh, the Balkans, Montenegro, Bosnia, uh, Croatia. No one's there. It's empty. I was at the bottom of the steps of the Game of Thrones, the famous steps, shame, shame, shame. Only person there. Only person there because it's January. When you go there in... July and August, you cannot move there from six o'clock in the morning till midnight with thousands of people squeezing there. So there is ways it can be addressed by educating people, just moving out of sea. It's not always possible. Kids, families, uh, work. I know all of that makes a difference, but just seasonality can move some of this volume around, give the people visiting a better experience and give the destinations and the locals a better experience than the craziness that we're all gone. Am I confident about this going forward? No, I think we're going to co create a great big cluster mess that I'm not quite sure how to fix. I, I'm I'm a little I'm, I'm a little on your side with this, Pete. I don't think there's a lot of hope. Um, I, I I think the incentives are misaligned right now. Now, listen, I do not do destination development work. I'm not a sustainability expert, and a lot of this conversation happens in that sort of space. And so it's usually on governmental levels, it's talking to flights. And of course, that's really important. But I think of, you know, our position in the industry, which is tours and activities and attractions. Uh, in other words, how to fill your time in a destination. And I feel like core essential problem is something I noticed when Get Your Guide recently announced their AI travel planner or a new iteration of it. Uh, it was splashed all around LinkedIn. And um, it was, I'm going to New York City for a few days. And they had a little um, GIF uh, or GIF. <laughs> I always forget which but one. Uh, never <laughs> um, A little animated screenshot of scrolling through what the planner produced. And all it was was skip the line attraction tickets. So here you have a company that is saying the future is guided all these incredible rich experiences. And it was One World Observatory and it was uh, the Statue of Liberty ferry cruise and it was um, a Broadway show or whatever. And Chris, you said it before, it's like the argument is always, well, it's what the customer wants. But there's this vicious circle of these platforms that need to sell something. And so they have to already present a consumptive model of what travel is, which is you go to just purchase tickets to things tours and whatever else, you fill your time purchasing things to consume. They don't really have a lot of incentive to offer non-commercial non, non, non things to spend your time with. And on top of that, they're responding to a customer that they've trained to want a certain thing. And so it feels like it's just like a vicious circle that I don't know how to exit from when there's so much money, billions of dollars of money being pumped into essentially platforms that just want to continue to sell, 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 sell. And so 
it's sort of like the way gentrification works in New York City. It's not that the hip neighborhoods move around and it becomes cheap again elsewhere. It just all becomes over-commercialized, expensive, and 2 billion people in the next, I mean, we're outperforming GDP uh, around the world by 2x, 3x, 4x, 5x. That type of idea of growth is extremely scary to me as a direction for our industry. If you give customers what they want in tourism going forward, tourism will be regulated to hell. Because if you give them what they want, you'll end up with a complete and utter mess. And then that will be fixed by regulation coming in at scale. And we're already seeing it to harm. So what does that mean? That means the only way this changes is by tourism organizations, whether you're DMO, whether you're a tour operator, whether you're a hotel, whether you're an airline, everybody in tourism would have to then start giving what destinations, what the planet, what the world needs, not what the customers want. Now, that's easy to say. Is that going to happen? No. What we're going to do is give customers what they want, and then we're going to end up having to regulate the hell out of it. That's life. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's get to our call-in show. This is actually meant to be a call-in show where we respond to other operators and we don't just pontificate and bloviate. Let's go to our first caller. As a reminder, Pete and Chris don't know what's about to be played at them. They're just going to respond in real time. Here we go. Our first caller. This is Sean Grant from Great Falls Travel in Washington, D.C. This is a marketing question. I am considering purchasing a tour company that operates without a website. They do maintain an active Facebook group and utilize an email list to inform their customers about their new tours. To better assess the effectiveness of their digital marketing efforts, could you suggest three key questions I should ask the owner regarding the email marketing strategy and social media presence? Thank you. Well, good question. So the you're looking to purchase a company who doesn't have a website. That's the first thing that doesn't really compute in my brain. It's, it's like, how, how have they survived this long um, without one? Welcome to the old, old world of multi-day tours. Mm -hmm. You build a little audience. They're faithful to you. You meet them at road shows or in, 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 in high school gyms where you host a meeting with free coffee and they book your trips. That's the old American mm -hmm. way of selling multi-day to these small communities. Yeah, but well, well, I was it's a similar position to another Sean who was with us in one of our huddles uh, when he bought over a company. It was a similar, although they did have a website, it was a similar position in terms of of having a company who had a really strong sort of customer base of repeat customers because of a particular age group and things like that. So, and I suppose that's you no know, one of the questions to maybe ask you know, this company that you're thinking about buying from. Is no the email list that they have? No, who 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 are the demographics in that list? No, where did that list come from? Is it purely past customers, uh, or is it people signing up to uh, through other methods? The fact that they don't have a website, I suspect, is past customers. Uh, and how many times are they repeat customers? No, how often do they book tours on a regular basis every year, every couple of years, things like that? That's the sort of questions I would be asking in terms of the list of people. I'm sure people have some more ideas and uh, after I'm not running sort of similar businesses, but in terms of from the marketing point of view, it's and a sales point of view is knowing how many of them actually come back time and time again to book out tours. And yeah, what age groups are they? No, if they're all in their eighties and nineties, that list, unfortunately to say that list of people probably isn't going to last that much longer. No, <laughs> uh -oh. to, to be honest, oh, so, uh, so it's how are you going to get new blood? No, how, no, what have they been doing to try and get new blood and maybe a younger demographic, etc. if it is a more older demographic that they're, that they're attracting at this moment in time? Maybe they're not. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they want to sell is because they're struggling with that side of things. Hence the reason you need a website, you need all that to get your messaging out there and, and try to attract that younger audience. The fact that they don't have a website as well probably means they've done no advertising whatsoever. It's probably all been maybe press ads, leaflet drops, things like that. So they probably don't have that much of a digital presence out there, if anything. The good thing, they've got a Facebook group. That's a goldmine. I've always been a big fan of Facebook groups. Um, how many people are on there, finding out the demographics on there? Are they only the customers of the people that they served as well? Again, that will have the same possible issues as the email list. If they're an older demographic, 
know, how they were bringing in new blood, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be maybe one or two questions I would ask at the start. Who, who are they? Who are the demographics, the type of age groups, et cetera? And what have they been doing to try and you know, get new blood into that list? If it, if it does indeed, from what it sounds like, you know, it tends to be a business with an older demographic. I'm sure Pete's got some stuff on that as well. Yeah, so the, this is my world. I, I love this stuff. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of buying businesses rather than doing startups. I've done multiple of both myself. Buying was always more successful than, than starting and quicker. Uh, so I'm a big fan of this. This sounds like a really old business. Uh, again, that's a big plus for me. If the business has been about for years, that means it's been generating enough cash flow to feed whatever it was needing to feed for the years. So that's a big positive. Not having a website, obviously, is a, is a big warning sign. But again, that's, it's threatening opportunity professional operator coming in and sorting out that marketing and then that marketing presence means the upside is is quite big on something like that as long as it has enough traction as it is. Chris covered off the lifetime value of the customers. Who are these customers? How many times the booking? What's the lifetime value of them? What age they are? What profile they are? Again, how are they booking? If somebody hasn't got a website, they probably haven't got a payment system that is up to date. I would want to know the whole process of how they are booking. A big warning sign on this is who is the owner? Because when something hasn't got a big digital presence or a big market presence with marketing, it normally means the business is built a lot on relationships with the mm -hmm. owner and their networks. And then if you're buying and that owner's disappearing with all your cash off to the beach to drink cocktails, probably all of their customers could disappear off with another company as well. Uh, on there because it's been built on the relationship of the owner. They may not, it seems strange in today's world not to have a website. This individual may be the best networker you've ever met who may be at events every single week of the year, face-to-face -face events networking and bringing in several million dollars a year without a website. That happens. And as crazy as it sounds, particularly to younger people, that still happens. So... The relationship and how that, whoever owns this business is generating the business is my biggest warning flag here. But on the other side, opportunity, opportunity, opportunity. And there's three, there's three different businesses when you buy. You can buy a really good business. You can buy a medium business. You can buy a bag of spanners, a useless business that's broken. For most operators, do not buy the best business you can get because the chances are you can't improve it that much. If it's singing and dancing, you cannot add much value. Something that hasn't got a website straight away is telling me you can add value. So this is either in the middle, and I'd need to look more okay, to see if it's in the middle or it's in the baggy spanners. I don't recommend buying the baggy spanners. I do that because I can buy really cheap and they're broken. I can fix them. Most operators should be buying a reasonable business that has a decent upside on it. And this, this is certainly, we know this is not at the top end because it's not got a market presence out there. So it's going to be in that middle end. So there's a lot of opportunity, it sounds like, but the relationship thing would worry me a lot. How is she generate he or she generating those customers? Because it sounds like mm. it's relationship group. Yeah, it sounds like it's all based around that individual, doesn't it? So I'll I'll translate for um an American audience. Uh is it a fixer upper or is it a teardown? <laughs> Do you <laughs> Do you see some good bones in the structure of that business? Here's, a, I mean, here's the, the, the reality. Our industry isn't that old. The idea of packaged multi-day tours for mass trout, you know, for ma the mass tourism market is a post-World War II enterprise. So a lot of these businesses that are legacy old businesses, except for the oldest of the old, which are usually very large companies now, thinking of like Globus and Colette and Taug and all of those, those are all 100-year-old businesses this like second tranche of businesses are like 60 years old, right? They're not the, they're not the people that led the first, you know, Europeans and Americans on, you know, um, van expeditions through the hills of Switzerland, but they came in after World War II and sort of capitalized on the fact that suddenly jet travel was cheap and, uh, uh, or getting cheaper and uh, Europe was getting a lot easier. This is when those guidebooks like Frommers were coming out that were helping people understand how to navigate places that are not uh, the United States. And a lot of these businesses grew on the growth of the industry. And now they are, 
out of their league in the sense of they're old and they don't understand this new landscape of selling a bit uh, of, of, of house travel gets sold, but they still have functioning businesses because they are legacy businesses with legacy audiences. And Chris is right. They're, they're aging and it's a great opportunity. Not every single business is an opportunity, but there is a tidal wave coming of essentially wealth captured in businesses that are not made for 2024 that can be potentially refashioned and regrown and rejuvenated uh, for, you know, for today's, I guess, generation. But it does, I, I see a huge opportunity because you have two sides of a market. You have a largely a market of existing tour operators or professional entrepreneurs who don't know about this opportunity. And you have a large group of operators that are essentially like, if my son doesn't take this business over, uh, then it's just going to sort of die. And they don't understand what means to create a saleable business. And so I think uh, maybe it will or won't happen, but I see an inflection point just, just demographically right now that is potentially a huge opportunity for um, acquisitions. So the, the largest demographic in history of the boomers, the largest business-owning demographic in history of the boomers, which I'm a part of, is all coming up to retirement age and they're retiring at scale. I think I read some data that 10,000 a day or a, or a week are retiring in the US. Uh, huge amounts of these people were business owners, obviously not all tourism business across all of them. All of this is flooding into the market at the moment. There's two opportunities here, obviously the straightforward opportunity to buy these businesses coming onto the market, but from a tour operator who's not interested in buying, this is the wealthiest demographic who are suddenly retiring with lots of money in the bank. So although huge amounts of marketing effort goes on chasing 18 to 25 year olds, all the people with no money, do not ignore all the people my age at the mm -hmm. other end with money because they're not going to want to die without spending a lot of that cash. They've been working very hard for God knows how many decades. They're all at retirement or about to retirement. And there's a huge pile of cash at that end of the market. They, they all bought homes at reasonable prices compared to today's today's values and things like that. Yeah, let's 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 not get into that, or this is going to be another hour of soapboxing. Um, but I will also say those boomers are going to be the initiators of the greatest wealth transfer in history as well. Uh, to to their children, tens of trillions of dollars over the next decade or two are going to be going into the pockets of of other people as well. No, if you're like even I've told my kids they're getting nothing. I fully spend. I'm going to spend everything. I've got, but they're not working. I think I've got 217 months left or whatever it is I've got left. They're getting nothing. <laughs> they got an education. Not really. I believe. I believe demographers um, group you into the cranky boomer generation <laughs> uh, group. Subgroup. Next call. Get ready, set, go. Hi, hey guys. Thank you so much for taking this call. This is Cherry with My Bellevue to Travel. And I have a question. And I believe it's something that maybe Mitch had discussed at some point um, about a way. And I was calling it hybrid tours in a meeting I had with Peter the other day. But I actually have a question about a way that you would have like independent travelers so we could build a document maybe in in AI, some type of document that gives um, travelers information that they need on the area that we're covering, but then they have access to like an on-call guide or they have a guide stopping by two or three maybe times during a 10-week period to check in on them. I feel like this is something that maybe Mitch discussed at some point. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate I on did how discuss to make it, that work. Thanks. Cherry, about 15 minutes ago <laughs> with Pete and Chris. And also several times. I bring it up all the time because I think I'm still a little sore. I pitched essentially some sort of version of this uh, to a very large company with a lot of inventory and a lot of uh, types of inventory. And they called me an idiot. And I think it is going to be the future. But this is a version of what we happened to sort of discuss uh, a little bit ago, Pete and Chris, but I think Cherry's inflection is actually more focused on 
the design. Like, what are you building? What are you using the technology for? What does this independent mode of travel look like? And how does it connect with moments of group experience and moments of shared or guided experience as well? I don't know if either of you want to tackle it first. Well, from a from an information point of view, you know, if, you, if you're if you're going to have whether it's a some sort of app or some sort of AI chatbot type thing, which it sounds like that's the sort of thing you're thinking about uploading your own information to it, so it's it's purely focused on your own business, your own values, your own voice, etc. From that, it's just making sure that the the content you upload to whatever it is that's going to create all this uh, information is is spot on for the customer. It's not just a, no dry facts and figures and things like that. It's actually going to be something that benefits them. Though why should they use it? It's like any app that's produced out there these days. What what is it that's going to make me want to use it and download another thing for my phone or whatever that would be? Um, so it just really needs to be you know it needs to be really thought out in terms of how useful it's going to be for the end user. Or what type of is it going to be? You know travel guys as are traveling around. Is it just going to be information about the business? Is it going to be a combination of all these different things? But again, it's you know, there's tools out there. You know, I know Pete, Pete looks a lot uh, looks at a lot of these different types of things, and I've been testing them out myself as well where you can actually upload all your own information, create your own chatbots. And for the most part, they're actually pretty decent. Um, you no know, GPT, you know, ChatGPT has their own way of being able to create that type of thing as well. And there's other platforms out there that use similar methods. So it's just finding that, just making sure that the information you upload is well, part of that is, is the main crux of it. It's just making sure it's useful for the user at the end of the day um, and making it unique to you and providing stuff that only you can provide that no one else can. If it's, if it's just another information app that you can easily get on a website or something else then i'll probably say it's not i wouldn't bother going to all the hassle of doing it but um if it's something useful then yeah for sure that can then connect to different platforms and different other things as well yeah so disclosure here i have an advantage because i know sherry's business because she's a coaching she, she attends our coaching sessions and she's also attended one of her mm. uh, huddle retreats where we do deep business dive into each people's business so she's a multi-day operator in southern italy uh, mainly with American clients on multi-day trips of reasonably, uh, not luxury, luxury, but high-value multi-day trips coming into Italy. Uh, and she's suffering here a little bit from some Michael shiny object syndrome. <laughs> she's seeing all these other tourists arriving in a region of Italy and other regions of Italy who are self-guiding, who are finding their way about doing stuff, but they fit her profile, similar age, similar... Uh, spending power coming from the USA. So there's all of this other market she's not been addressing because hers are guided tours coming in. And I'm a big fan of building from strength. Like you don't, if you're going to build out, you build out from your core strengths and core abilities and build from that. Don't create something completely new. So if you're a multi-day operator dealing with a set market, I wouldn't be building something attack, attacking people who are doing random one-day trips, two-day trips, three-day trips, and general travelers, I would be wanting to build tools that's going to be want, that will make my multi-day customers' experience even better. Right? So they're not with a guide all the time. They're there. Can you do something that will enhance their experience more? Is it better? And I know Sherry only operates in one region of Italy. Is it better to operate in another region on the original model and double your business rather than going for volume of customers on these tools where you would get more customers than you'll do on a multi-day inbound, but it's a very different business from what you're doing at the moment. If some businesses are capable of having different channels and different businesses if you've got the resources to do that, but if you're resource light, like most of our community is, Build out from your strengths and your knowledge. Don't jump into something that is quite alien to you. So I would be serving her existing customers better with tools and then introducing her existing customer base into different regions, again, with a bit more tools to help, but not a completely new channel or a new model. Yes, so there's two questions here. There's is is this the best business direction for Cherry? And then also the larger question of, you know, what are we doing with these kind of hybrid tours? And I think one, I you know, I've operated tours to Europe for um, Americans for a long time. I've also been on the tour leader 
side of the equation. Uh, back in back 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 in the day, where I sit there in Europe and wait to welcome and guide around uh, groups, and you know, one of the probably biggest needs or pro pain points of this kind of audience is oftentimes they're arriving in the destination before your trip starts, sometimes one, two, three, four, five days in advance. And it's usually because you're creating a trip that is not staying in Paris, but meeting in Paris and going through the Loire Valley, going up to Saint-Malo, going over to Normandy and then, um, you know, whatever, and coming back, or you're going to this, or you're going to three, four countries or whatever. And so I feel like the pre-tour uh, tour is a large and missed opportunity for operators to surprise, delight, and service their guests before um, uh, the tour even starts. And this is where I think some of these discussion points can be relevant to you, Cherry, but also I think um, opening up a larger door for our industry because this technology allows you to personalize according to the unique decisions that that couple has made before they join the group. Uh, for example, they've decided they are going to stay for three days versus five days versus two days. You have the opportunity to use technology to enable a customized experience that you can offer them. And you have opportunities as well to use, you know, so yes, it might be, I guess you call it an app, but it might be kind of an information portal. But I think, um, you know, we're all talking about chatbots these days, but don't forget uh, it's really, really easy and simple to create using something like Bubble, uh, a little quote unquote app that isn't like download this, but it's like a little place that you're offering information and help and support uh, to that couple for um, the few days before they meet you. But I think the larger opportunity, you know, is something that I saw uh, Vox, the uh, VOX, the company experiment with as we were coming out of the pandemic. They... Uh, they were, I mean, I don't know how it's doing as a business model right now. The fact that I don't really hear about it, I means probably didn't do well, but they, they did this, they did this thing where you use their audio tech to travel around Rome or Paris or wherever. And, um, they had guides leading audio based in-person guiding guided tours. And basically if you ended up near them, or if you decided to like wake up at 11 o'clock and uh, um, load up the app, you could basically join on to a tour in progress. And so you could marry their self-guided commentary across all of Italy or all of Rome with the fact that you ended up in proximity with, uh, uh, with an individual that was basically a human being a hop on hop off bus. You could hop on that guy's tour, that woman's tour, and then hop off it at various points. Now, listen, it's quite complex, quite creative. So I applaud it for thinking outside of the box. There's a lot of design potential pitfalls with that, of course. But what I like about the idea of what this technology can enable is, for example, uh, again, these pre-night individuals wake up and maybe you have a designed pre-day experience that is optional and maybe you hire a guide to do that and you know it might look like this it might say it might be an email in your inbox it might be something in you know the little app a little notification or whatever and it might say welcome we know you've arrived in in rome ahead of time should you choose to accept this adventure at two o'clock today Go to the bottom of the Spanish steps. There will be a man in a red hat. And go up, use this password, say it to the man. And if he responds, blah, 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 follow him. And we have a pre-trip adventure plan for you. Now, listen, I'm making this up, so don't do this. But here's what, you know, here's what you're enabling. You're enabling a feeling of emotion, a feeling of surprise. So you're not just using technology or an app or these kind of, you know, you know, potential engagements with human delivered through technology. You're not just doing it to give them more information and feel them more set up. You're doing it to add a little emotion to your trip. Because then at that welcome dinner where everybody's finally gathered for your trip, suddenly people are talking about the man in the red hat and that adventure that they went on or whatever it is. Use technology to enable surprise moments, to enable emotion, to create 
a more interesting journey for your customer from the moment they start the trip, which is before they even meet you, to the moment it ends or whatever. Um, that's where I hope we're starting to use technology is to actually think creatively, not just replacing guides and delivering boring AI-generated crap delivered to your ears so there's a constant stream of crap flowing through you at all times, uh, but instead using it to make us feel more alive in a destination. And I think there's just a completely untapped potential for technology to enable it, not to replace it. But it needs creative people out there doing things. Final call. Hi, guys. It's Aaron here from Tri Island Chocolate. We are a uh, culinary tour experience. We do a Rastafarian tour. We do make-your-own-chocolate-bio experiences here on the island of Grenada. Um, we basically are really keen to try and get some guidance in how we can connect with the cruise ships. We have a fair number of cruise ships that visit our island every season, um, but we have agent or an agent which controls the vast majority of the tours that end up being submitted to the cruise ships and being taken on. Um, we're really keen to try and connect with them directly through the shore excursion departments, um, really struggling to connect with the right people as there's a lot of people when it comes to cruise ships so any guidance any support how we could connect with the different caribbeans uh pnos and so forth and try and offer our excursions directly to the cruise ships um instead of having to go by an agent so any support would be greatly appreciated thank you basically a uh, operator in grenada uh, wants to get uh their chocolate experiences and other tours in front of cruise ship uh, cruise ship passengers going on short excursions. Ah, oh, good. Cruise ships. That's an easy topic without a lot of conversation around it. Uh, <laughs> Pete, thoughts about short excursions? Yeah, well, so this week we launched the big world's biggest ever cruise ship. Uh, just been launched this week. Some pictures all over the media. Uh, just happened to mention that no one seems to be noticing that there's a whole host of horrible people with really cheap technology now that's attacking ships and two massive navies can't stop them doing it. So cruise ships are a target going forward. 100%. But that's another subject. Uh, this is really difficult for small <laughs> operators. This is really difficult for small operators because the big cruise ships work through big agents who have got it down because these are multi-billion dollar businesses with big agent relationships. So there's many, many people in the, the channels there. It's not, it's not impossible. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's really difficult for you as a small operator to get someone in that company with each of these different cruise companies who's going to contract just your experiences because the agents are contracting dozens and dozens and dozens of experiences and working with the the cruise ship operators on that. So this is a scale game. They have, as you notice, the size of these things is 100% a scale, scale business. So if you put your, you have to put yourself in their feet. Why would they want to contract with you as a single operator with all of the complexity of doing that? Because they have to do it hundreds and hundreds of times in multiple destinations. So they're not, they're going to go with an agent who's got lots and lots of operators and uh, contracts that they can deliver the package. Now, there are ways it can be hacked around that and you can chase and chase and chase and eventually get someone. They probably just keep referring you back to the agent. But there is a certain percentage of cruise ship passengers book direct. It's not a high percentage, but as the oldies die off and the youngers start doing more cruises, God knows why they would, but they obviously do. Uh, they'll there'll be a chance of more and more direct bookings for cruise ships. People got mobile phones. If you've got a decent digital presence, you know how to market, you know how to do geo-marketing with Facebook ads and the rest of it. There is a market of getting direct bookings from the cruise ship. And I've seen it happen time and time again in every cruise ship destination. It's not the ideal because it's quite expensive marketing, but the margin of getting the booking direct will justify it. But the other route, I really think you need to work with the agents to get this scaled up quickly. Uh, the challenge you're working with the agents is when you slice the margins, it rarely, rarely makes economic sense in a lot of the time because the margins that is asked are often ginormous to beyond the point of worth doing it. 
Yeah, you mentioned their Facebook ads and things like that. No, and I was, that was one of the things I was going to advise on. Is like if you're targeting the consumers themselves, not running the geo targeting ads directly on the port, but also figuring out where the where the ships come in, and even setting some of the ads out in the middle of the sea, so they get they get it, you know, maybe a day or two beforehand, and things like that. So your ads are popping up, saying, "Look, when you arrive in my destination, would you like to take out this tour?" Yada yada yada. Doing ads based on that and figuring out where each ship comes from, the, the way that they come in, the way that they travel, as well as the ports as well. As well, that's a great way of just getting in front of your customers because your customers are going to be on their social apps and things like that as they're on the cruise ship, pretty much every day, all day. Um, so it's something to maybe consider as well by targeting them direct using Facebook ads. Yeah. Who takes a cruise or like the big cruises, the least adventurous kind of traveler out there, uh, because it is completely prepackaged to the point that you don't have to think about anything and you know exactly that you'll get the mashed potatoes and meatloaf and tacos and everything else that you love at home in an all-you-can-eat buffet with Broadway shows, uh, even though you're in Grenada and you shouldn't be watching a Broadway show. And then it comes to the shore excursion. So what are the emotional pain points that uh, that, that that kind of cruise pas passenger wants? Well, first of all, they want safety. And that's the big, big, big thing that the cruise companies, which are a cabal um, uh, when it comes to shore excursions, tell that passenger they say don't you dare book with anybody else but us because the minute you do we can't guarantee your safety they prey on that safety so if you are going to run facebook ads you got to hit that emotional baseline of making sure it feels safe which means it needs to be very convenient you can't tell them we're conveniently located 1.2 miles away from the port no uh, you need to be there uh greeting them and taking them so you need to design and i i don't know where your chocolate experience is but you didn't you need to design an experience that can first of all compete on that basic psychological level. Second of all, Pete is absolutely right that the customer that might be on that boat is not always the one that wants the cattle call, load up the bus of 48 people and take the shore excursion to blah, 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 blah. There's a certain percentage that are going to want uh, something elevated or different or better. And so, you know, on a second level, um, your Facebook ad says, avoid the cattle, the cattle car, the cattle car buses and, you know, taking you to the, you know, the, ch you know, the cheap touristy excursions run by the cruise ships come for a private adventure that you will, a private small group adventure that or semi-private small group adventure that you'll never forget. And so you need to design a price point that doesn't compete with those cattle call shore excursions, or it's a losing battle, design something that goes in the opposite direction for that niche of an audience that says, I'd rather pay $200 for the best possible Grenada experience because I only have one day there. And by one day, I mean five hours. Um, you also say guaranteed return to ship on time because that's another mm -hmm. thing that's really important. If you're on TikTok, then a large percentage of TikTok is focused on people recording passengers running for the boat uh, uh, because it's about to take off without them. I'd say that's about 40% of, of, of TikTok videos right now, according to my algorithm. And um, um, so getting those psychological needs, making sure you compete with uh, the cruise ship on those basic points, but then go the opposite direction of uh, where they go. And they go towards just total straight commodification of the experiences, right? So you got to be an experience, truly. Um, you can't just be an attraction. And then on top of that, you know, I look at, um, you know, so beyond running ads and designing your own experience. The one platform that I see doing well with cruise excursions is tours by locals. Um, they do a lot of cruise excursions, of shore excursions. They don't have an in with the agencies, but tours by locals has a large percentage of people that um, will just book a tours by locals uh, a tour wherever they go. They're in all sorts of different destinations and places. And so um, they have a loyal customer base and they're private tours and they're high, they're high cost tours. And so that's a customer, whether you're creating a shore excursion on tours by locals or partnering with one of the guides that already has an established reputation of leading those, I think that's um, an avenue. And that's not the only avenue. That's just the one on the top of my, my mind. But that's the price point I think you should be aiming at. Everything else is just going to be annoying. And are you going to get in with agents or be able to work with a cruise ship directly uh, uh, to market your tours? No.
I'm sorry, they're not a charity. They are a high margin business. That's why they register their ships in Liberia and pay their workers uh, from Indonesia $2 a month uh, and keep them locked up eight floors below. Um, it's because all they care about is profit. And if we had any more time, I'd really lay into yeah, the peak. No, the, and although there is business there to be on the direct marketing, like I said, it's actually even a bit more complex. Because I've been to Grenada, I've seen the ships coming in, and I can see the different brands coming in, and I know the different price points the customers are paid to be on them different brands, on them different ships, and them different experiences. Therefore, I would want my marketing to be tailored to the ship because I know the customers on the ship are willing to pay vastly different prices depending on what ship they're on. So from a, a, a small company with direct marketing, if your marketing is agile and complex enough to be able to deal with that, that's fantastic. But if it isn't, it's quite a difficult thing because all of these cruise ships have different customer profiles. And some of them are fantastic profiles and some of them are not great profiles. Yeah, that's, no, that's partly as uh, telling your messages for that. And, and my, my, I've never been on a cruise, so I'm not too sure how it works. But no, if you've got boats coming in at different times, or I imagine maybe different days of the week and things like that, certain cruise lines will come in. And it's maybe telling an ad like on a Tuesday, you know, a P.O.'s one's coming in or on a Wednesday, something else, then and tailoring it for that and then having a messaging, changing your prices accordingly. But I agree with Mitch. No, if, if you're, you're going to fight a losing battle, if you're just up against all the same sort of group tours and everything else, no, you're just another another one offering the same, the same bog standard tours going to uh, going to a particular destination. But if you're offering something a lot different, that will help you stand out. You might get less people paying for the tour because uh, because it's maybe so niche and high, a higher margin, but you should eventually make more money because you know, you're, you're, you're going to sell a good number of them for those people who do want uh, something a bit different. And there's plenty of people out there who do want something a bit different. There's a good book on this called Category Pirates and... Being a category pirate means you create your own category. You don't compete with everybody else. You go in an opposite direction and people can't compare what you do to anything else. And you're going to lose a lot of customers and that's by design because you don't want to have them. You want to have the certain person that goes, that's my experience. And um, uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly recommending people do that because I think it's also creative and enjoyable and it makes you feel happier about the kind of business that you're running and you're not just sitting there freaked out that your competition lowers their tour by a dollar or uh, you lose your ranking on a platform. Um, so it's also got a quality of life element to it. We promise to keep these to an hour. Uh, they're getting spicier every time, or maybe it's just me. No, it's been good. I, guess, I like the format, as you say. No, we don't know what's happening. No, we might have some sort of different, differing opinions and things like that, but at, at the end of the day, the person who's who's asked the question hopefully gets something out of it that can help them grow the business or maybe think rethink what they're doing and that's what I said. So I think it's I think it's a great format. Maybe it's because we're all doing a dry January. We're all <laughs> agitated here. <laughs> I may have something to do with it. Good. As always, you should remember that we have a free Google course from our sponsor Google um, at tourpreneur.com/google, which helps you understand and enroll in Google things to do which is a really easy way to load your tours and get more direct bookings and get more visibility across Google. It doesn't hurt to try. You know why? It's free. So go out there and visit our course. Always, as always, there's a lot of resources, show notes, and more on tourpreneur.com. Join our newsletter, This Week in Experiences, and join our Facebook group uh, for peer-to-peer non-commercial advice. And um, Pete, I'll leave a final word to you. Uh, so February's just about. I can't believe we're already in February. Tomorrow, as well as normal coaching calls from all of us, we had something like 16 different coaching calls during January with six different coaches. Uh, during February, I'm going hard on it, as well as my normal strategy courses. I'm doing a B2B workshop over four weeks to help operators uh, grow their B2B relationships and get more distribution. This is what I'm going to finish on because this has been said to me several times this week for the operator, and it's wrong. Hey, several operators indicate it's too hard to compete online. It's, uh, it's saturated online. It's not. Right? There's nearly 9 billion people in the world. An online audience is completely undervalued still 30 years after we started being online. 
If you can build an online audience with a digital footprint, combining your web, combining being on lots of other websites and have a group that you can build a community out of, an online audience is probably the most valuable thing as an operator you can build. It is, it is totally still underappreciated. It is not a crowded market if you can get your own audience online. All right. There you go. We'll see everybody again in on the Tourpreneur Call-In Show and send us your questions and we'll get spicy with them. All right. Enjoy. Bye.